I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Scott Stewie, CEO of Direct Trust, a nonprofit best known for creating and maintaining trust frameworks for secure email messaging in healthcare. Scott will be speaking to me about a new Direct Trust initiative, the Privacy Enhancing Health Record Locator Service, or PEARL's ecosystem consensus body, to develop a new standard to support a voluntary nationwide patient credential and matching ecosystem. So Scott, what is the goal of PEARL's and why did Direct Trust launch this effort? You know, it's interesting. I think everybody in healthcare understands that our goal is to get to get patients able to get hold of their complete record, uh, and their caregivers want to get the hold of their complete record. And really, we've done a great job of getting health information exchange capabilities in place to make this happen. But the one unsolved problem in healthcare information exchange is patient matching, and this is, I think broadly understood. And a lot of folks have been working on it, but they've been hamstrung by the fact that the government isn't able to lead the charge on this discussion, particularly if a national identifier were a part of our thinking. So um, everybody has been kind of unable to talk about the use of a national identifier in the government se- sector because there's a, a prohibition to, to have that conversation. Basically, they can't spend any money on the discussion of a universal patient identifier, which actually was called for in HIPAA, if uh, folks remember. But we were approached to basically convene a discussion about how this could take place with or without the government's help. So could you, in fact, see a national identifier deployed and placed in use with standards and technologies that are agreed upon and collective action by a large part of the industry, as opposed to government uh, top-down requirement? Now, if the government, in fact, later um, decided to support that, so much the better, but it would be so much easier for the government to support something if they knew what that something was. Part of the challenge that we've had in government is that there's been this palpable fear associated with what a a national identifier would look like. And so that's, I think, part of this is to just remove the fear by making it clear what it is and how it would work. So with that said, Scott, what sorts of organizations would be involved in creating pearls and who would use pearls? So I think the first thing to know is that so far we've had a ton of interest in pearls and health systems are very interested, but also organizations that are in the systems integration space. So um, our uh, health information service providers, HIEs, health information networks of other stripes, Those are the kinds of organizations that are immediately interested. Several of those organizations would represent possible uh, candidate architectures that they would bring to the party. Um, So we expect really a lot of different folks to be interested in this exercise. Payers, identity providers, organizations that provide the the services associated with getting populations identity proofed and, and getting credentials. So that uh, we actually expect an awful lot of interest from a lot, lot of different quarters. What will Pearls potentially enable users to do? What would be sort of a use case scenario that you might be able to describe? The goal here is to be able to make it possible for, for patient demographics to be shared between organizations without a central source of all that information being available. So right now, the way that this is done, the way patient matching is done, 
is that in order to get information about a, a patient, health information about a patient, you have to provide a significant amount of personal information about them to get it, get it back. So you, you send a message that says, here's all the information about my patient. Does it match anybody in your system? And then the, the, the system is getting that message and has to look at all of the demographics and compare them to demographics on file in their system to see if they match. The idea is to move that to a model where a single identifier is what's really used. So if an identifier is provided in that same message, then really what happens is that the, the health information is exchanged without having to evaluate the demographics at all. And that, that what that means is you can use less demographics, and it means that people have to collect less demographics in order to get healthcare information exchanged. So one thing PEARLS doesn't do is change how healthcare information is exchanged. That the basic things that we're doing today and the things we would do in the future. So the, the basic query-based exchange we have today, the push messaging with direct messaging, all of that, plus fire exchange in the future, all of those elements, they all depend today on demographic matching, which is actually mostly uh, suffering from false negatives, meaning that you know that it doesn't bring back the records you want. So the use case is the following, where the patient basically is able to get an identifier that they can present wherever they go, and that identifier makes all their records reliably matchable with all of the records that are in other places. So it's actually a quite simple idea on one hand. On the other hand, the complexity is that you have to actually also manage that thing over time, because Patient identifiers can, first of all, they might be merged. You might discover that they're two in use, and so you have to pull them together. You might also discover that they've been abused or, or misused, and so you want to deprecate them and get and give a new one out. Um, and so what this means is that you have to have the ability to communicate to all the places where the record is in use. And this is the reason why Pearls is a record locator service, because in the absence of the knowledge of where the records are, you can't manage those identifiers. Uh, those identifiers need, need to be updated. And so that's, I think, what's interesting about the work that has been, been done on this in the past is that it's actually thought through a great deal of these, um, of these use cases. What would the identifier look like? What sorts of things would consist together that would make this a patient identifier for a particular person? Is it a matter of different pieces of identifying information kind of rolled into one spot or how would this work? Well, this is, I think, one of the most interesting things about the prior art in this space. So there are a couple of ANSI-approved standards out there that are actually pretty mature. They've been out there for quite a while. One is E1417. Uh, the other one is E2553. These are two different standards that came out of an effort like it started in 95. And one of the, the standards is actually for the identifier itself. The identifier is actually just a number, and it basically has a, a two parts to that number. One number is the identifier of the individual themselves, and to the right is a, is a security element. That security element basically defines some of the aspects of, of what, de, what separates this into a group of identifiers, if that makes sense to you. So all of the patient identifiers that are open identifiers are identified in the same group. They're all open and, uh, and fully, freely available. 
Then there's also private identifiers and identifiers that are specific for purposes like communicating sensitive information like 42 CFR or substance abuse information. Uh, That kind of special security problem is communicated in this second part of the identifier. But the, the idea is that the central service that contains these identifiers only has numbers. If you completely hacked it and or posted the whole thing on the internet for anybody to read, there is nothing to see, nothing to find. There is no, no information in it at all that it can be used to identify anyone. So is it hack proof or if it is hacked, there's no way of really tracing back to whom this identifier belongs? Right. All of the demographics are held at the endpoints that are actually using the the, the identifier. The the central source of the identification is just the locations where the identifier is in use. So that's all all that's actually in there. But the locations are also just identifiers. So what you find are you know, basically just a list of numbers in this. So yes, if somebody hacked it and downloaded it, uh, you know, then it's, there's absolutely nothing to find there. Um, So it obviously has to be also secure so nobody can mess with it, you know, and change it around or make unauthorized alterations, but they would, they wouldn't have any idea what they were doing because there's really no, there's no meaning to these things in the absence of understanding how they were created. So would this potentially work with existing or perhaps new electronic health record systems? Or is it something more that, you know, the health information exchange organizations and the health information networks would use as opposed to, you know, a hospital communicating with another hospital, for instance? Well, the the expectation here is actually that you would have any place where this, where the identifier was in use would have to have a, a, a sort of a widget in place that would allow for the update of the EMPIs at the local locations to make to be possible when there's an update to something in the in the central system. So if, for instance, the patient wanted to combine two identifiers into one, and this would be done entirely under the patient's guise. So the patient would actually have the control over how this stuff would work. Um, so the patient could basically say, oh, these two identifiers that I got need to actually be one because I'm me and I, I'm, I'm responsible for both those identifiers and I will cause them to be merged. At that point, the message would be sent to all the places where the identifier was in use and it would be updated. Now, exactly the mechanism that this, is, this would be done under and what technologies would be involved, that is what we're talking about discussing. And there are multiple approaches that might be taken. There are certainly the approach that was actually um, utilized in uh, work that was this prior art I described is a model that is, is actually would, I think, to be deployable today as is. But the question of whether or not it's the perfect thing based on current technologies and current expectations, I think that's what we want to try and refresh and have people um, come and bring their thoughts. Today, of course, we've got options in the blockchain space where people are thinking that decentralized identifiers are the answer. There are numerous other approaches that might be on the, on the horizon, even things like the digital currency initiative that represents a sort of a working model of, of how very decentralized approaches would be used to transact. Those are the kinds of things we're going to be looking at. And Scott, how might this effort support the HIPAA patient right to access their health information? Now, that's a really interesting question. And one of the challenges we have is I think we've been working very closely, for instance, with, uh, with the Karen Alliance 
on a um, on a federated credential effort, which is slightly different subject. So credentials versus identifiers, you know, people I think may conflate these things a little bit, but a credential is something that you use when you log in, right? So if you're a if you're a patient who's using an app of your choosing and you want to get ac access to your record, we've been trying to make it possible for patients to get single sign-on access to all their record sources in all the places where they show up. Now that, I think we're, we're pretty close to coming up with a good model for that, working with Karen Alliance and in collaboration between Direct Trust and Cantera and other organizations that are trying to figure out how this could be supported. Now the behind the problem, however, of, of getting an authorized entrance to a system is then the question of whether or not the records that are in that system match the person who's asking for the records. And so that has really been a bit of a slowdown for the process. It has, it has made it very difficult for ecosystems to turn loose of records for patients. So health systems that are offering patients records today are very comfortable when their own portal credentials are used for patients to get access to those records when you use some other credential to get access to those records, they become far less comfortable. And the reason for that is because they're having to match those patient records on a probabilistic means, which is to say the patient is providing a series of claims about who they are, and they're matched to the, to the information that's in the patient record. And if they match at an appropriate level of exactitude, then they'll go ahead and release the records. And the appropriate level of exactitude is actually at this point in time expected to be 100%. I think that would be about what they would, what, what they would be comfortable with. So far, there really isn't any, any exchange like that happening, or, or very little uh, exchange like that happening. And so the jury is out on whether or not once you could get a federated credential, if the door would really start opening and a lot of uh, records may move, I think some will. I just don't think all will. I think a lot of records will not be let loose because there'll be false negative problems where the patient does not appear to necessarily exactly match the records on hand, even though they are in fact that patient's records. That I think is the problem we're trying to solve in general terms, but it has a, this specific case for the patient right to access question. So Scott, what is the timeline for pearls? What should we be watching for and how long until maybe a pilot would potentially be feasible? Well, here's there's there's two answers to that question. First off, in terms of how long it takes a standards effort, uh, one thing I try and tell everybody in the standards community, you know, there are no preordained outcomes in standards development. <laughs> You can't decide how fast it's going to go. You can't decide uh, what the outcomes will be. And in fact, that I think is um, an, a disingenuous standards effort that starts with an assumption about it, how it's going to turn out. But let me just give you an example from our previous experience. We, we did, a, I think, a pretty fast development effort on a standard for notifications that was, again, a source, an outside source came to us and said, work on this and see if you can't get this together. So we did a, a notification standard in a little more than a year. It's just about ready to go to ANSI for approval after a, a little more than a year of work uh, in a consensus body just like this one. So, and it was a fairly large group. I expect this to be a fairly large group. I do think it could happen that quickly. I think we could come to consensus that quickly. It'll depend on, frankly, 
how many people come and, uh, and, and what kind of ideas are presented. Uh, so we're, we're excited about the potential that we could do it in that kind of time frame. Now there's also going to be an opportunity for us to do a sort of a proof of concept with existing art. So we could take the, the existing stuff that is out there that is actually associated with this organization called GPII. It's, it's Global Patient Identifiers, Inc., this organization has a working model of such, an, uh, such a system based on the standards that I was describing earlier. That working model is something we look to demonstrate in the, uh, in the August timeframe at the Direct Trust Civitas Joint Conference in, uh, in August in San Antonio. So we're, we're excited to, to do that. We don't necessarily think that's the answer that we would come out with after a year, that's sort of just a proof of concept and a demonstration piece. But we are actually already in the process of assembling a group of folks that will demonstrate that approach in that time frame. And very briefly, Scott, what else should we be watching for this year from Direct Trust? What else are you working on that you would want us to know about? Well, thanks for asking. The other thing is this, this work we're doing with Karen, we're participating in their, um, in their credential, this federated credential proof of concept that they've launched. And so that's something you can watch for. Also, keep attentive to, to our work with the Information Exchange for Human Services, a consensus body that just, just stood up. That work group has actually gotten very active. It's been very interesting. So Watch for that as, as it starts to put some messaging out. So I think that's that's probably the big work we're doing right now. Well, thanks so much, Scott. I've been speaking to Scott Stewie of Direct Trust. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.